All right, welcome to the Friday Q&A. I'm Pastor Mike Winger answering your questions in the live chat right now, dealing with theology, apologetics, the Christian life, and just trying to give you the best answer I can to try to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. Uh, as always, I'll say I don't promise to know everything, understand everything. That's definitely not the reality of the situation, <clears throat> but I want to share whatever I do have that might be a benefit to you. And as always, we're going to be taking your questions and then putting timestamps in the video description as well as in the first comment down below once this is done so that you guys can navigate through this video to find exactly what you're looking for. The first question I'm dealing with today is one that I have received a number of times. It's the who do you think you are question because I have videos refuting the teaching um, of people in, in various, and I should say analyzing, it's not like I refute everything these people say or do, but challenging the teaching of guys like Bill Johnson or Todd White, um, or in, in, in his case, Miracles, the, the, the YouTube miracle videos that, they, that he's posted, um, or Brian Zond, who I think has a very dangerous and bad theology, and um, Brian Simmons, who has, you know, the author of the Passion Translation, who probably thinks I'm persecuting him, <laughs> which really that's, that's not what's happening. But the question I get is, Mike, who do you think you are? You know, Matthew 18, it says that you, you have to go to the individual Christian. You can't, you can't just do a video refuting public teachings. You have to go to them. So Mike, did you go to Bill Johnson? Did you go to Brian Simmons? Did you go to Todd White? Did you go to these guys? And <clears throat> in some cases I did actually try to reach out to them um, and even have conversations, but it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if I did or not, because that is a complete abuse of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is being used all over the internet to keep Christians from using real and normal discernment in dealing with and handling issues that come up in, in being able to evaluate, accept, or even reject some of the teachings of people that they find online. And so we're going to look at Matthew 18 and we're going to see where Jesus actually talks about this. And I'll just briefly show you how this doesn't apply. And then I'll talk about the touch, touch not the Lord's anointed. <coughs> Pardon me. That verse. Stop. Just stop. All right. If I was trying to stab Bill Johnson, <laughs> then, then you'd be right. And for not just because he's anointed, but because it would be wrong. Uh, at any rate, Matthew 8. 1815, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, that's when it becomes public. After those first two steps, then it becomes public. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which is effectively excommunication. You're, you're saying, we still love you, we care about you, but you're not part of our fellowship because you will not receive correction on these important areas. But this has no application to me evaluating a video from Todd White on whether or not these miracles are legitimate, which I'm always hopeful that they are. <clears throat> um, it has nothing to do with me evaluating Bill Johnson's teachings or Chris Volatin, uh Valentin, I always pronounce his name wrong. Sorry, Chris, it's not on purpose. Um, not like he's watching this video. He blocked me on Twitter anyway. <laughs> that's another story. And um, and it has nothing to do with any of that. That's, that's all irrelevant. Why? Because the context is if your brother sins against you. This is not about teachings. This is about personal sin issues. This is if, if a brother, if another believer sins against you personally, first go to him and tell him his fault, not his false teaching his fault between the two of you alone. You're not going to gossip. You're going to deal with it between them. Now, this is a very under-practiced teaching in Scripture. I think for us as Christians, we do well to realize that before I go to others to tell them about what you did, I should go to you and tell you about what you did and seek restoration. It's just uncomfortable. It's con it's con confronting and all that, but it's seeking restoration. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. If he still doesn't listen to them, then you tell it to the church. If he still doesn't listen to them, then you effectively excommunicate. But this is obviously talking about grievous sin issues, not some, oh, you, you offended me thing, but like some grievous, serious sin issues. Nothing to do with public teachings. Public teachings are rebuked publicly in scripture all the time. The prophets do it constantly. They're, they're dealing with the teaching. There's prophets dealing with the teachings of false prophets, rebuking them publicly, openly in front of everybody. <clears throat> um, Peter is rebuked by Paul because his behavior, not his teaching was wrong, but his behavior was inconsistent with the teaching of the gospel. And so in Galatians, we, we read in Galatians 2 about P uh, Paul rebuking Peter to his face in front of a whole crowd of people because 
Paul cares about the impact this behavior is having on the Christians around him. And that is why I will continue to make videos that occasionally, it's not my main thing, mainly I'm doing teaching content, but occasionally doing videos that will deal very straightforwardly with teaching from other pastors, other leaders in, in the Christian church. And some of them are heretical and some of them, they're my brothers and I, I support them in many ways and I just disagree in some areas. But because I care about you, okay, this isn't about me being pious, I just want to, I want you to know that you can do this too is the point. If your heart is love, love for God, love for others, then yes, you can confront openly teaching issues that are going on. Now, there's a lot of discernment ministries that do this really poorly, right? They're looking for flaws and errors and they want to, <clears throat> they want to find something wrong. They delight in it in, in a, perhaps a, a sense of carnality that's there. Um, they exaggerate. They misrepresent the people that they're refuting. I hope I don't do that. I certainly try not to do that and all that. Now, when it comes to the, to the idea of um, do not touch the Lord's anointed, this is a phrase from the Old Testament, right? Where David will not touch the Lord's anointed. What he means is he's not going to kill, murder Saul. That's what it means. So the simple application is that I will not murder other people because I have problems with them. All right, easy problem solved. Right? Now, that doesn't mean I want to be creating division and being divisive uh, in the body of Christ. And I'm not going to be gossiping about my pastor behind his back and things like that. But where there is public teaching and the teaching is an error and it's bringing harm to the body of Christ, it is entirely appropriate to publicly, carefully, rationally, and graciously confront it, which is, of course, what I try to do with my teaching content on occasion. <clears throat> I'm going to be taking your guys' questions now. I hope that, you know, and maybe we'll get a question on that topic as well. Uh, but we're going, I have no prep that goes into, well, little prep that goes into the Friday Q&A. Um, that's because you guys have asked for this Q&A content. But that means I've not read these questions before. So I'm going to read them, try to understand them as best I can, and give you the most thoughtful answer I'm able to. Um, hey, Pastor Mike, this is from Max Bolser, who says, I was wondering if you could talk about and help me understand Mark 16, 17 through 18, specifically verse 18. I haven't seen those two signs played out. Perhaps it could be metaphorical. Um, now, this is a question I've gotten uh, a number of times, but often what that means is that it's a question a lot of people have and they still have it. It's not like everybody watches everything I do. <laughs> um, okay, <clears throat> verse 15 of Mark 16. And he said to them, Jesus now, after the, after the resurrection, speaking to the disciples, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. Actually, this is, I, I thought you were going to ask about the, the, the next couple verses, but you're asking about these verses. Um, oh, no, no. You are asking about the next couple of verses, 17, 18, it says here. Um, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, I'm going to answer this with a bit of complexity um, because I think it's a complex issue. First, we have the question of what does this mean? How would it apply into our like churches and lives today? And second, we have a question of whether or not this is actually original. Now, I know that can be like a really bothersome question. But look, here's me. I'm a very conservative Christian. I trust and love the, the holy word of God. I believe it is a God's inspired and errant word. I, however, think that most likely Mark 16, at least my current thinking on this, is not original. And that's the majority of what scholarship thinks. If you check the footnotes in almost any Bible you've got, it probably says that in the footnotes that not all of Mark 16, but the last 12 verses of Mark 16. <clears throat> I'm going to actually be doing a little research project on this topic to refresh myself on it, to just double check myself, see if I should change my mind. When I get here <clears throat> in the Marks in the Mark series, I'm doing verse by verse through the gospel of Mark. So it'll be like, you know, sometime next year in 2021. I'll cover this in detail. So I'm inclined to think that this is not original, that, that this is something that was added as a way of, you know, making Mark feel more complete. And it's a long and complicated issue. Um, again, I'm going to ask one of my mods to post the playlist to the video series. I have three videos on textual issues related to the scriptures. And if, if I need, if you can't find it and put it in the live chat, I will put it in the video description afterwards 
textual issues related to the scriptures. It will answer the 100,000 questions that just popped into your mind if you've never heard this before. <clears throat> um, it shouldn't waver your faith or anything. It's just a complicated issue. Now, let's suppose, though, that it is original and that these signs are supposed to accompany those who believe. Uh, my basic interpretation would be that these signs accompany those who believe doesn't mean every believer, but it means that there's going to be miraculous signs that in general will be seen amongst those who believe. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be happening for all time, in all seasons, in all geographies. So we would only see this at least on some occasions. And in particular, we see it in the book of Acts, right? They will cast out demons. Okay, we see this in the book of Acts. They cast out demons and still this is ongoing in the church today. I mean, this is this. there's, there's maybe some fabrication that goes on, you know, calling things demons that are not... Um, but there is the reality of demonic possession and casting out demons going on in the church today. I would think that that is happening. I think we don't talk about it all that much, and that's that's okay. Why would we sit there and just talk about that all the time? That would be strange to me. Um, this, you know, we're not treating these things like it's like some entertainment thing. Um, <clears throat> they'll speak in new tongues. We also see this, especially in the Book of Acts. But we do see it often where the gospel goes out into new locations. We see the demonic being cast out, and we see speaking in tongues more often, even nowadays where the gospel is going into new locations, new places, places where it's never been before. And that's what's going on in the book of Acts as well. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. This is not a prescription for snake handling. Snake handling is idiocy. Snake handling is utter idiocy. It's tempting the Lord. Jesus, in the temptation with Satan, Satan tried to pull this trick on him, right? Satan's like, oh yes, God promises to protect you in Psalms, Psalm 91. So jump off this build, this building and, and God will command his angels and they'll protect you. And Jesus responds, do not tempt the Lord your God. So the application of, in, oh, I'll be protected if I pick up serpents. Now I'm going to pick up serpents to prove God's protection in my life. Like that's a satanic idea. Like literally satanic. Like look, here's Satan with that idea and now you're doing it too. Like that's, that's what I mean by that, right? Um, so yeah, that drinking poison, deadly poison that is, is going to kill you and thinking God has to protect you and you'll prove his power by doing this is folly. You're tempting the Lord where we see this play out in the book of Acts. So, so it's speaking of divine protection. God can divinely protect his people. It doesn't mean he always will. Cause Jesus also spoke of us being martyrs of us suffering of us being killed and put to death. So it's not like he's always going to protect us, but you will see God's God's hand protecting his people. If this is to be a modern application. Um, I just don't think it's across every individual. And I think you, you can't take Jesus's word seriously and think it applies to every person all the time. Um, but specifically the book of Acts, Paul takes up serpents with his hands. Um, he's starting a fire and a serpent bites him and he shakes it off and all the islanders know he's going to die and he doesn't die and they realize that God is protecting Paul. So it becomes a proof of, a miraculous proof of the legitimacy of his message. And then they'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. We see that in the book of Acts. We do see this occasionally in the church, not as much as I'd like, and not as much as I think some <clears throat> hyper charismatic groups claim. But I do think we absolutely see it. And I've heard too many testimonies and seen too many things to think it doesn't happen at all. And so, yeah, if you, if you reduce math, uh, Mark 16 to an expectation that happens in the church, at least on occasion, as a verification of the gospel, especially when it's going into new places then that looks like it has been happening throughout the years. If you think it's supposed to happen in a snake handling sense, you're clearly violating scripture. All right, let's look at the next question. This is um, Tori and uh, Andre Guransrud. I'm sorry, I know I pronounced your name wrong, but um, in any, in any rate, your question is, how should we interpret 2 Corinthians 12.2? Are there levels in heaven? Has it got anything at all to do with the phrase seventh heaven? All right, let's check this out. Second Corinthians 12, 2. And I'll see if I can remember. It wasn't too long ago. I was actually looking up <coughs> the, these terms uh, discussing heaven, levels of heaven and stuff like that. And in a teaching, oh, I don't remember which teaching it is. I, I actually went into detail on this topic, um, but I'll try. I think it was in my teaching on Mormonism. I did I did two hours on Mormonism. That was it with Lisa Lazur, but I also posted it on my channel. So it's called like um, uh, Mormonism Defending the Faith, I think is the name of the video. And I, I go into more detail on this. I'll see what I can recall off the top of my head right now. 
So Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions. Let me put it on your screen too. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, which is clearly Paul. He just feels so uncomfortable talking about these things. He puts it in third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. <clears throat> so the the short answer is this, that my, my research on this topic is that, say, um, you know, compared to, say, Mormonism, which I don't think your question is about Mormonism, but Mormonism believes, believes there's three levels of heaven. And the first level of heaven would be not outer space, right? Would, would actually be, we're talking about like um, a distant faraway location that is an afterlife destination, right? That That's the three levels of heaven are those things. <clears throat> but with Paul and with the Jews of his time and with the rabbis of his time, when they talked about levels of heaven, they would use three or sometimes they would say seven. In his case, he talks about the third heaven. It, what's clear is that he just means the place where God is. That the first heaven in all of these situations, however many layers they put on heaven, the first heaven is always just the atmosphere. Just the atmosphere around us, like where birds fly. That's always the first heaven. It's not like some separate location that corresponds to like levels of heaven. So if someone's like, I was caught up into the first heaven, the second heaven, and <clears throat> they're describing um, things that where angels are and sort of a spiritual realm or that kind of thing, that's not consistent with what Paul's talking about, I don't think at all. The research I did on this showed that first heaven is is consistently when you're talking about three heavens especially first heaven's consistently the atmosphere beyond that we're talking about like where the where the stars and stuff like that are so we're thinking of like space and then third heaven would be god's actual presence right being caught up into the location where god's throne is where angels are that sort of thing so that that should i mean that should just answer that question um modern prophetic things describing like the levels of heaven and different degrees of glory and stuff like that it really honestly strikes me as a bunch of just made up stuff and it makes me i'm just being completely straight with you guys it makes me personally very suspicious when i hear people talk about that stuff if they're like well then i went up to the second heaven and you have to know in the second heaven there's there's no water but there's but there's a lot of uh mist or and, and they if they start doing this kind of thing i'm just thinking i don't trust them anymore um Paul would have thought the, the second heaven was more like a physical reality in space. And the third was just with God. <clears throat> That's my research on it. Check out my Mormonism video if you want more details. I spent some time actually researching that to answer questions in that video. Um, <clears throat> fourth question from Cat Chat, who says, Mike Winger, are Christians who believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is allegorical you wrote allergical but you're probably like me i just type quickly and don't check what spell check does to my words um so is it allergical no definitely not okay but are christians who think genesis 1 through 11 is allegorical unintentionally or no denying the divinity and validity of christ considering what jesus said in john 5 44 through 47 let's look at the passage and let's try to answer this question All right. <clears throat> how can you, this is what Jesus said. Let's think, how does it relate to Genesis? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. <clears throat> but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to say, and let me try to build a case for it, but that I, I think in my opinion, that this John passage has no application to the question of Genesis. So, um, or of, or of your view of Genesis. So if you think Genesis is allegorical and let's say you're wrong, let's say that you think it's allegorical and you're wrong. Does that mean that you fall into the condemnation of, of John five forty four because you're not believing something that Moses wrote? And I, I would say no. Because um, I think that that reasoning is based on on a disconnected idea. So the idea is that <clears throat> they're rejecting Jesus. And Jesus says, this is because you didn't really believe Moses. Because if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. Okay. The application we're taking from that is, if there's anything in Moses, the Pentateuch, if there's anything that Moses wrote that you don't believe, 
you therefore do not believe in Jesus because you have to believe every individual thing that Moses wrote about correctly or you are rejecting Jesus because believing in Moses is a prerequisite. Believing Moses, what he wrote, is a prerequisite for believing Jesus. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at at all here. I don't think he's he's saying that. That would effectively mean that any anything you think in your head that is inconsistent with the Pentateuch means you're not a Christian. So there's going to be perfect theology in the first five books of the Bible. Your, your theology has to be perfect. And so I think this is this is a dangerous perspective, in my opinion. Um, I would not encourage people to hold that view. I think that people can simply be wrong about things like creation, and they can be saved still. And I, I don't see any, any problem with that. I think that being wrong on creation can have other consequences, but I would not question a person's salvation. Um, you know, maybe you, you think, uh, like me, that evolution is, is not something you, you hold to, at least common, common descent and abiogenesis. I think there's a lot of room for variation and adaptation and stuff like that. Speciation even. It's my opinion here. Um, but you don't hold to the theory of evolution, common descent, and abiogenesis in particular. But yet Francis Collins does. Francis Collins, he's a Christian. Right? As far as I know, Francis Collins loves the Lord, and I believe he's saved. But he holds an absolutely <clears throat> um, more materialistic kind of perspective on creation and on evolution. Not just creation initial moment, but ev biological evolution. I wouldn't for a second question his salvation. I would just disagree with him on that. And I don't have the credentials to enter that debate. I'm not going to try to, but I, I have an opinion about it. So yeah, let, let's major the majors and let's recognize secondary issues. And I do think, this, this may come as a surprise, I do think that creation is actually a secondary issue. It doesn't mean it doesn't impact primary issues, because it can. You can have denials of <clears throat> the doctrines of creation, and then that can impact your theology in other areas, and then those become essential issues. So that's possible. But let's not just force that to happen. Let's not just assume that that's happening. And that is, an, uh, I think, an error we make. We, we should not discount the salvation of Christians who believe in um, evolution or, or maybe they take John Walton's view and they believe in like this sort of temple language and um, the, the creating things is really about assigning them purposes. You know, here's a name and here's a purpose. Now it exists in, in this Hebrew mindset that this, that he, that he talks about, or you take William Lane Craig's view that he's pushing, which is, um, I would call, uh, archetypal hist historical view. That's my term for it. Cause I don't like his term for it. Um, and I think he should change his term for it. Um, <clears throat> I would call it like archetypal history. I think that's an accurate way of, pr uh, presenting it. So I, I think that these are all, these are all perspectives that we can say, look, these are all within Christian faith, that doesn't mean they're all true. That doesn't mean they're all right, right? You have the seven-day creation like uh, Answers in Genesis pushes. And um, I have questions about that myself, whether I whether I hold to that, to be honest, um, because, because I'm just, I'm kind of on the fence. In fact, I'll say this, because I'm on the fence, you you might have to say that I'm not saved because I'm, I look at Genesis 1 through 11 and I say, I'm not, a, I, I believe it. I just don't know how to interpret it right now, okay? Does that mean I'm not saved? I'm not really believing Moses? And you get my point. We're, we're cutting off body parts in the body of Christ when we do that. Grayson Fuller says, um, what is the biblical principle, if any, in keeping our bodies physically healthy and to what extent? Think smoking, piercings, uh, eating or exercise habits. <clears throat> um, the biblical principles, I think, are very broad. They're very broad. And because of that, when it comes to applying them, there's a lot of variety and there's a, there's a layer of complexity there. So let me talk about <clears throat> the principles. First Corinthians six talks about it. Like all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Okay. Does, does that mean I can only do that, which is actually helping me in some way? I don't know if I would take it that strictly, but it's an observation that we should care about whether what I'm doing is helping me or not. Um, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any, it says in first Corinthians six. So I should be aware of the, the, um, the bondage that can come into my life when I commit to certain things. And this is not just addictive substances like alcohol or something like that. This is talking about, I think, when, when behaviors and desires just take too big of a place in our lives. A hobby becomes an obsession. <clears throat> that's not healthy. That's not helpful. And it's bringing you under its power. 
So I, I think that the, the rules are, Hey, yes, there's a sense in which all things are lawful. So like for, okay, for smoking marijuana, I think that this is something that inherently gets you stoned. So you're not sober minded. And so you, you shouldn't do it recreationally or, you know, uh, medicine's a whole separate issue. I'm totally fine with morphine as, as a proper use of medicine. I think that's an honest exception. I'm talking about recreational use. Okay. That seems obvious to me. Maybe I'm wrong on something. This seems obvious to me. I'm not asking how well you can get along while you're high. I'm asking if you're sober minded in a biblical sense. And I don't think you are. So that's easy. But what about tobacco? Like what if someone smokes a pipe and the effects of tobacco, and I've did some research on this, the effects of tobacco are not actually, they don't make you lack sobriety. So then we have other concerns like, okay, well, you know, health, well-being and bondage. Okay. So as long as you're not doing this in an addicted fashion, like if it's not a pack a day habit, I think that would become into a sinful area. But if it's not a pack a day habit and you just occasionally have a, a, a pipe of tobacco, then I don't think I have a biblical case against that. Now, I know that's not a popular view in, at least in my circle, I don't, I don't care. I, I care about the people who, who would be irked hearing me say it. I care about you a lot. But what I care about is that I do think that that's actually fairly applying scripture. I think it is, right? Just like alcohol. Alcohol is, is appropriate as long as it's not in any way threatening your sobriety um, and you're old enough and all that. Now, I don't even drink and I say that, okay? I don't, I don't drink alcohol and that's because of some things in the past um, that I don't do that. It's a personal conviction thing. But I can't in good conscience can tell others that they can't and then try to twist in all honesty, twist the scriptures to try to support that view. So I think there's a, there's more liberty in the Christian's behavior than the more conservative Christians like myself would like to admit. But I think there's more restrictions in that behavior than the more liberty-minded Christians would like to admit, that we're somewhere in the middle, that so often we have on one side those who are like, abstain, 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 and they're they're asking you to abstain from more than you need to, and then you have on the other side, liberty, 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 and they never stop and say, but is it glorifying God? But is it bringing me under its power? But is it helpful? And they don't even ask these questions because they, I just see this over and over again, is there's people who are abstain mindsets, and there's people who are liberty mindsets. Now, here's the thing. The person who's an abstain mindset, they will never sin by abstaining from these things. They can do that to the Lord for his glory. But the person who's of the liberty mindset, they're at the greater risk to, to be abusing substances or abusing things. Um, they're, at the one, they're the ones who are more likely to be gluttonous, more likely to be lazy, more likely to be those things. So we, we need to try to meet in the middle a little bit more <laughs> on those issues. Um, when it comes to bodily health and exercise, you're a steward of your body. It doesn't mean you can't do anything unhealthy, right? Um, you can eat a gummy bear. <laughs> I eat gummy bears. But that doesn't mean that you're then doing something sinful because that's not healthy for you. But there's obviously some balance of moderation that needs to be in place. So I, I hope that helps exercise. I think it's the same thing. When you know your body needs exercise to be healthy, then you should exercise. When you neglect that knowingly, it can move into a moral place of actual sin. I, it just seems obvious to me. All right, I'm going to move forward for the sake of time. But Lucas Callahan says, how do you respond to Matthew 16, 28? Well, I would have to read Matthew 16, 28. I do not have that off the top of my head. How do I respond? Oh, I have a video on this. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I have a video on this. I really hope you'll take a, a, an opportunity to, to, to look at it. It's, I think the video is called like, was Jesus a failed apocalyptic preacher? I think that's what it's called. I'm going to find it real quick because I want you to be aware of it. Um, yeah, so... Yeah. Okay. It's actually called this was why Jesus was not a failed apocalyptic prophet. I know that's a weird title. I probably should have given it a better title than that, but I went through this passage and several others to, de to deal with this. Um, so here's my brief answer to just this verse, but I give a much longer answer. It's like an over an hour long, all kinds of stuff on this. And I dealt with RC Sproul and his content because he is, has a different view on this than I do. And I like to engage with other views than my own. So please check that out. Um, we will link it in the video description. Um, I can uh, link it right now. I hate for the give you guys a delay. I'm going to put it in the live chat for you guys. 
Oh, there you go. And Sarah Zimmerman did as well. So, um, okay. So check this out. In all the gospels, every gospel that has this statement of Jesus, that that there are some who are standing there with Jesus, right in the, his presence. I, I admit that. Who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Every single gospel, the same thing happens next. There's, and remember, chapter breaks are new, right? Chapter breaks are new. But the transfiguration of Jesus, these, this thing happens in every case immediately after Jesus says, there are some, meaning a minority, there's a group of people who are standing with Jesus right then that will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the next thing that happens is the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up uh, a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as lightning. Who are they going to see? They're going to see the Son of Man in his kingdom. There he is glorified he's he's his glory is being revealed before them i should say and behold there appear to them moses and elijah talking with him i mean that's him in his kingdom you know he's he's their boss and he's talking to them and peter said to jesus lord it's good that we're here if if you wish i'll make three tents um here one for you one for moses and one for elijah he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased listen to him um yeah, every single gospel has this account after Jesus makes that statement. Three gospels do that. Why is it? It's because that's the fulfillment of the prediction. It wasn't um, most of you will see me coming again. It was some won't taste death till they see the Son of Man. And the very next thing they do is they see the Son of Man with Moses and Elijah and with God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. And they see him in his glory. So yeah, that to me seems like the most obvious answer. And I didn't get this from commentaries, although it's in a bunch of commentaries. I got it because someone asked me the question and then I looked at the passage in all the gospels and was like, wait a minute, look at the context. And uh, I love that, that we can, we can come to those conclusions just through the scripture. Nathaniel H., does Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 speak about Satan? Thanks for your evidence for the Bible series. Really helpful. So I do have a, a Bible study on the topic of Satan. Uh, I keep referencing other studies. I just want you guys to be aware because there's a lot of old content I've done and spent a lot of time on that many of you have never seen because you probably just click on whatever YouTube happens to surface for you. Well, you might want to go into the archives sometime and see what you might be missing on. That might be a blessing. But I will say, I do think Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 do speak about Satan. I deal with it in that video. I realize that I think among scholars, the majority view is different. The majority view is not that. Um, but I'm going to say that one of the reasons that this that might explain that is because in my view, scholarship um, often operates as though the doctrine of inspiration is not present. And so they're Christian scholars, they believe in inspiration, but as they're doing their scholarship, they operate as though that doctrine is not present. And when I see the Bible, I do see a cohesive whole where God is revealing things that are in his mind that may or may not be in the mind of the authors every time. I think that's an important principle of interpretation that we, if we set that aside, then we lose some of the meaning of scripture. So that might be one of the operating principles that's causing me to come to a different conclusion than some others on those. I think Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are both talking about Satan. And I deal with it in that video, what the Bible teaches about Satan um, from like 30 years ago. That's not that old. It's, it's a few years back. Um, Sally Richardson has a question. Can you explain what lordship salvation is? Um, it's an unfortunate term, in my opinion. So you've got these two camps, Sally, where um, in one camp, they, they want to de-emphasize the idea of repentance. And they want to say that, when you come, all you need is belief. You don't need repentance. And they want to separate the two, which I think is problematic. That you have faith, but you're not you're not turning from sin. You're just believing in God. Then you have the other side that says, hey, believing in God, part of that is turning from sin. We're turning from sin to God. This doesn't mean that you perfect yourself. This doesn't mean you do any great works because repentance is, an, is a change of mind and heart. But then the other camp responds, wait a minute, repentance means you're going to do better and doing better is works. So you people are saying that we need works to be saved. And then the camp I'm in over here says, no, we're not. You didn't listen. You're defining repentance wrong. And that's why you are allergic to it and why you won't preach it 
We're saying that Jesus preached it. Repent and believe, repent and believe. And that repentance and belief are just two sides of the same coin. You're turning from sin. You're turning to God. You're turning away from the dark and to the light. That's the camp I'm definitely in. Now, the term lordship salvation, I think, was coined by uh, John MacArthur. And it's an unfortunate term because it does lead people to to build their case that you're saying people have to be good to be saved. And that's not what we're saying here. We're talking about a turning, an, an internal turning away from sin to God. That's what I mean. And so lordship salvation is, is an unfortunate term. And I, I don't I don't really want to be labeled with that because I think it's so misleading. But I do think repentance is, is, is something we must preach. I have plenty of teaching on that topic as well. So I hope that helps give you a quick um, overview. Now let's see. We have, um, uh-oh, I, I don't know what it is about Messenger. Sometimes it just jumps up like to a week ago. <laughs> I have to scroll around. Um, this question is from Arno. How would you react if someone said that all truth is subjective? There's no concept of truth except what works for you. This is also why I don't have to convince others of what I believe. Arno, in the first question of last week's live stream, I dealt with this in more detail. Like I went on for like 10 minutes or so on that exact question. What, do they, what if they reject objective truth? And it's just look for the same title of this video except episode 10. Here's when episode 10 is from a week ago today. And I dealt with that in detail, Arno. I'm just going to redirect you to that. Except I will mention this. Every sub claim about subjective truth is itself self-refuting, including the claim you, you said that they give you. How would you react if someone said that all truth is subjective? That would be a an objective reality about all truth. Objectively, all truth is subjective, which means all truth is not subjective because you were able to make an objective statement about all truth. Now, if they fight you on this, it's because they don't want to know the truth. Whatever they say next, it's going to be a truth claim. One way to handle this is to simply keep pointing out that they're making truth claims. Well, that's true for you. Wait, is it objectively true that it's true for me? Well, I mean, I think it is. Is it really true that you think it is? Do you really think it is? Is that true objectively? I mean, you, you just keep challenging them because subjective truth is the weakest, most horrible view in the world. <laughs> and it's but it's really self-serving because as soon as I say truth is subjective, it means I can make the rules up as I want. I can live my life as I want. I can do whatever I want and I have no accountability except myself because I'm the one inventing my truth. And it's, it's just incredible folly. Um, question number 10, praise God has a question. When you first accept Jesus into your life, is that when you become born again and baptized with the Holy Spirit or are they two different things? Um, so I, I probably don't have as fully thought out theology on this topic as I should. Um, I think I'll, I'll answer this from my perspective. Um, when somebody accepts Christ and I mean, genuinely puts their trust in Christ, which includes turning away from the dark. When they do this, I do believe they become filled with the Holy spirit in, I should say indwelt with the Holy spirit. I think also so, so right then, they are in union with God. They are connected to God. They are filled with the spirit in, an, in the inner indwelling sense. Uh, but there's another question about, can you receive more of the Holy Spirit than you already have? And I think that this seems ob obviously true from the book of Acts. And so like in Acts, when they, when they have this issue with the widows, some of them are getting, some of the, you know, Hellenistic widows or the Greek oriented widows are not getting taken care of as well as the others. So they hire these seven men to be deacons and oversee the, the, the food distribution to these widows. The requirements for the men is that they have to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, if every Christian was equally full of the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't make sense. There's something about these men that they are more spirit filled than, and though every Christian is, is filled with the spirit in the sense of being um, indwelling, the indwelling of the spirit. And so some people say, wow, well, the indwelling and the filling of the spirit are different or indwelling and baptism of the spirit are different. And I, in that, I'm going to, I'm not going to argue about the terminology. Um, I will say in addition to that, that there's multiple times where say Peter is filled with the spirit 
And it seems like it happens in multiple different occasions. So he's initially, Jesus breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. Later on, you know, they're, they're in Acts 2. That's in the end of John. Then in Acts 2, there they are, they're praying and the Holy Spirit descends upon them and they speak in tongues. And then later on again, Peter, it says, filled with the Spirit, which seems to be something that was happening in the moment. So I'm just saying you can have the indwelling of the Spirit and have moments or times or individuals that have a greater amount to use a charismatic term of the Holy Spirit. And I think that that seems to be biblical to me. It seems to be biblical to me. So <clears throat> there's my perspective on that. Um, Sarah P has a question. My Bible teacher said my family is saved because I believe in Jesus, citing Acts 16.31. I think she's misused scripture. She has. Let's We'll look at it together. <laughs> if so, how do I address the issue? Does forgiving mean trusting her again? <clears throat> okay, let's look at this passage at Acts 16.31. I have an idea of what the passage is. <clears throat> and they said, um, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them at the same hour of night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the, the jailer that they're preaching the gospel to. And I won't get into the whole story. Question is, can you use this as a text to say that people who, who believe in Christ, that their families are automatically saved? And oh, how I wish it were so. How I wish it were so. This is definitely not the case. Um, there's, there's no way to support this in scripture, that your faith saves other people. That's just no way. Jesus says like, you know, who are my, my mother? I mean, if you think if anybody's family is going to be automatically blessed because of somebody, it'll be Jesus, right? But he says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? It's those who do the will of God. So even Jesus, it's not, they're not like included by virtue of their family relation to Jesus, right? They, they ended up being some of his brothers, leaders in the church, but only because they did get saved later, not because of Jesus being uh, a believer. Well, a believer in the analogy I'm giving, he was a lot more than a believer. Um, Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the command is, he is to believe in, the, in Jesus and he will be saved. And I think the obvious interpretation of the second part is he and his household, what? If they believe in Jesus, they will be saved. Do you get that? Like that's, that's where this... This mistake is made when we think that the requirement is he believes in Jesus and the result is his whole household is saved. Instead, I would say he believes in Jesus, he gets saved. And guess what? That applies to his household. They believe in Jesus. They also get saved. And did they believe? Yes, because look, individually at the end, verse 34, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, he probably was very much an unbeliever. Perhaps his household was already, um, you know, more postured to believe in God. But they're, of course, believing in Christ now very specifically. But they would not rejoice with him unless they shared the same faith, right? When dad becomes a Christian, the family's not excited if they are not also believers. So there's evidence even in this passage that this family was believing. So, yes. We each, we each need to have faith in Christ to become part of the family of God, not just be related to someone who has faith in Christ. Paul refutes that in Romans as well, because in the, in the book of Romans, he's trying to show Jews that their familial relationship to Abraham does not save them. They're children of Abraham, but they aren't really unless they have the faith that Abraham had. And so if it doesn't work for them, it doesn't work for, for our families. Sadly, because we want them to be saved, but we also know that we're there to be lights to them, to share the truth with them, to try to try to see them come to Christ, um, and don't lose don't lose that mission. Now you said, um, how do I address this issue? And should I, if I forgive her, does that mean trusting her again? I'm like, no. I mean, it doesn't mean trusting her judgment with Scripture. If she shows poor judgment, you should be aware of that, and you should keep it in mind, not as a way of being critical of her, but as a way of keeping yourself from falling into mistakes. Right? You just you go, okay, well maybe. I'll take what she says with a grain of salt in the future because she said something that was obviously unbiblical and she misused scripture to say it and taught it to me. Okay, she's a Bible teacher and this is a problem. Um, so yeah, she misused scripture. Um, how do you address the issue? I, I think you go to her and you show her. Um, you, you do your Bible study 
and you show her, you, you could go to Romans, look for these passages. Like they're not really, they're children of Abraham if they have the faith of Abraham, that familial relation is not good enough. Show that in verse 34, the family also evidences belief, choosing to believe. Um, on a side note, it was really common, especially in less individualistic societies, when a father comes to faith, the family often does come to faith too, because they trust him and then they say, okay, it must be legit and they trust in Christ. So that's like a pretty common thing in non-Western cultures that are less individualistic. Isaac Floyd has a question. Is it a salvation issue? Oh, by the way, I would take that to your, your, to other leaders in the church if she won't listen to you. I would go to them with the concern. I think it's a big enough issue to talk about. Do it graciously, but do it with, with a conviction. Isaac Floyd. Is it a salvation issue if someone rejects the idea of Jesus being one and the same with God? I think... <clears throat> um, the, I'm, the terminology is, isn't my concern here of your question, but it, let's say they reject the deity of Christ. Um, yeah, I think that's a salvation issue because Jesus himself says in John 5, if you do not honor the son, you do not honor the father who sent him. And to take God's son, who is God with us, Emmanuel, and to say he's not God with us is to not honor the son and to not honor the father. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And so our beliefs about God the Father aren't going to be the things that mediate us to God. It's going to be our reception of the Son. This is seen in the reception of the, the Jews who did receive Christ. They believed in who he was, his messianic identity, um, the deity of Christ from right at the beginning. And those who rejected these things, they weren't Christians. They were, they were not called by his name. So I think the, the the identity of Jesus is a central issue. Does that mean you have to have every single detail right about the identity of Christ? I don't think so. But if you reject the core of his identity, then you've rejected him and therefore the Father. Reed has a question. Are unbelievers forgiven to some degree? I'm looking at Luke 23, 34. Interesting question. I wonder what the text is going to bring to us here. Luke 23, 34. Mm, interesting. Interesting perspective here. Okay, so Jesus is on the cross, and there he is. This is one of the statements of the cross. He's he's there being crucified, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the appeal is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, the, uh, the question is, does that mean that unbelievers are like, they're unbelievers, they're crucifying Jesus, are they actually forgiven? Um, I, I guess it depends... <laughs> I mean, let me, let's survey some options here, some theological options, since, since I don't know perfectly the answer here. Um, one is to think that they're forgiven in some sense, but not in the salvific sense. So it's one thing for God to forgive them in a sense of the, at least the offer of forgiveness, which is delayed punishment, delayed punishment. I'm not going to punish you for this. I'm waiting for you. I'm giving you time to repent, time to come to Christ, time to, to, because if he judged them right then, they would be killed on the spot for crucifying the son of God. So this could be a sense of that attitude of, of delay. This God is long suffering, uh, not willing that any should perish. So it may just simply be that. In that case, it's, it's, it's forgiveness offered. The father's offering the forgiveness and the reception of it is dependent upon them eventually trusting and receiving Christ. That seems pretty consistent with other things in scripture, I think. Um, um, another option you might try to say is, well, they're forgiven for the crucifixion of Jesus, but they're not forgiven for sins in general, and which you were kind of leaning at. Like, are they forgiven for some sins? And for this, I would say um, there could actually be some merit in it because those who sin uh, without knowing, while they still have sinned, they are not held accountable in the way that those who knew what they were doing sinned. And this is a difference, difference between manslaughter and murder, right? A manslaughter is like, I, I was at fault. What I did killed somebody, but it wasn't on purpose versus I chose to, tried to, wanted to, and ended up killing somebody. These are very different scenarios. And the punishments for the, for the scenarios are different as well. In the, in the Old Testament, there's a vivid example of this with the cities of refuge. The, the Levite cities scattered throughout Israel called cities of refuge, were especially located there for manslaughter, right? The idea is this. If a man kills another man, but he didn't do it 
de- deliberately and there it doesn't seem like this was a murderous thing then the man can run to the city of refuge and there he hides he hides there stays there he can't leave that city and he's protected within the boundaries of the city when the high priest dies the man can go free and nobody can can come after him this whole thing's a picture of Jesus Christ so in a sense Jesus is saying they're killing me but they don't realize they're slaying the son of god like you know, we're delaying, we're delaying the judgment. I think it's parallels to maybe what I said earlier. So I, I don't know if that helps. I think those are some interesting things to think about. What I, I, I don't think it means is that non-believers are actually saved. So even if there is some degree of forgiveness and grace being given to them, that they will not be held accountable, at least to the same degree, for sins they committed without knowledge. That doesn't mean that they're saved, which I don't think you were implying anyways. All right, let's look to another question here whatever is lovely says hi pastor mike my daughter was baptized in 2018 and came out as bisexual in 2019 any thoughts on how to talk to her about this i've tried well i i i would really need to know your daughter to give you really good personalized advice the general things that i'm thinking are um the the culture that promotes homosexuality bisexuality sexual liberties um promiscuity fornication that culture it, it connects sexuality to identity. And this makes it a very difficult thing to talk to people about their, their sexual sins because they think you're talking to them about their core identity. Notice the terminology. She came out as bisexual. This is like, um, uh, like somebody coming out as adulterous. I just found out that I just am adulterous. That's just the nature of who I am. And then if you try to talk to them about that, you're attacking their very nature. See, this is a a total misperception. What the Bible calls a sin that comes from our sin nature, they're thinking of, maybe your daughter is thinking of this as a a, um, a proclivity or a, a design thing. This is who I really am. I am just naturally, it's almost like a glorified holy, holy type thing that I'm attracted to both sexes. It's like a virtuous thing even. So that is the thing that needs to be discussed, I think, is the difference between identity versus sin. Um, I think that trying to understand what she thinks about these things is key. Asking her questions, finding out where she's coming from, trying to create a space where she can talk to you about it. You can you can have conversations and you're not getting angry. Um, I think that's key. Showing her that you still love her, but not by offering her approval. Because that's what, that's what she's probably going to want uh, is approval. But there's, there can't be approval there. But that doesn't mean you don't love her. And then... That in that you're modeling God, who loves her deeply, cares for her incredibly, you know, sent his son to die for her, but does not approve at all of the sinful choices that she's making. So I think that trying to build those bridges and have those conversations, um, don't be alone in this. There's books that have been written. There's speakers that have that have talked. Um, you might read Christopher Yuan's book, Holy Sexuality. I think that might give you some perspectives. He was a homosexual, tempted, living that lifestyle, who came out of it and now he's following Jesus Christ. He wrote a book, Holy Sexuality. You might check that out. Use these resources to help equip you to have these conversations because your daughter's very important. Uh, John Ernest says, hello, Mike, what do you think about the Noahide laws? I've been told that if they're enacted, Christians will be found guilty of idolatry and executed. Should we be worried? John Ernest, I'm going to give you the sh- a short answer because I know we're, we're got to be going long. Yeah, we're like running out of time. So my short answer is this. Um, what I, I did look into this a bit the Noahide law stuff. To my knowledge, this is very much anti, I'm just being straight with you, anti-Semitism, you know, prejudice against Jewish people, fear of Jewish power behind the scenes, and, and a misunderstanding of even what the Jews believe and teach on these topics. So, no, they don't have that power. No, they wouldn't use that power. And and no, they don't even want to use that power. The Noahide laws aren't really that sort of thing. That That's my honest opinion about it. Um, there are those who this is their whole world is they focus, they obsess with this topic. And the fact that I've mentioned it means I'm targeted as I'm part of the conspiracy, that kind of thing. Um, if that's you, I'm not interested in what you have to say. <laughs> I'm sorry. But if you are a, a sincere person like, like you are, John, then you can share your guys' comments and your thoughts and stuff like that on this. Um, Yeah, I I don't think there's any legitimacy to it. I think it's shadows being turned into realities. Alexander Duncan. Hi, Mike. I've seen your Mormon series and met with Mormons quite often, and I'm wondering what is a good approach to addressing their belief in sons and daughters of God and pre-mortal existence? 
I'd have to meditate on that for some time, Alexander. What is what is a good approach? Like, so when I when I do a video on Mormonism, um, I have to be thinking whether I'm talking to Mormons or I'm talking to non-Mormons because I'm going to approach it very differently. You're asking, okay, approaching Mormons on the doctrine of pre-existence. Um, the first thing I would do is I would probably want to let them make their case. Like if I could sit down with them and say, make your case, show me the verses you use to prove pre-existence. And I would just want to write them all down. Are there any others? Are there any others? Are there any others? And just let them talk. Don't fight them. Then say, can we go through these and look at them? Then say, can we now go through some passages that I think challenge that view? Um, I think that might be one way to approach it if you have the time to spend with them. Um, there's my short answer for you. Olivia Hartland says, what are the seven spirits of God? Um, so, yeah, the, the seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation, some connect it to the book of Isaiah where it's like the spirit of the Lord is anointed me um, and it has a list of the spirit of this, the spirit of that. I don't think that that's probably the case. I think that in, I wouldn't use that connection. What I would say is the spirit, the seven spirits of God is a way of describing um, the universalness, the universal omnipotence and, and, and um, omniscience of the Holy Spirit. And so we have the number seven. If you look at the word seven in the book of Revelation, how you have the lamb that has like seven eyes and things like this, the seven spirits, um, there's seven churches. And th I think that this is a, it's, it's not speaking of there are seven individual spirits of God that are the Holy Spirit or something like that. I think it's just a poetic way of describing the omniscience of the Holy Spirit. That's my view. Short answers for the rest of this stream here today. Jackie Rock says, my in-laws are word of faith leaders and church owners, and it's a constant name. Name it and claim it around them. Should we have a doctrine sit down or just ignore? It's tough. I don't know, Jackie. Um, when you say they're word of faith leaders and church owners, my first thought is they're very likely to be the kind of people who will not listen to you, who will become loud and potentially aggressive and will start to, I'm just going to be honest, my fear is they'll start to just demonize you. You have a spirit of fill in the blank. You have a spirit of rebellion. You have a spirit of, of, of skepticism. You have a spirit of whatever. And I think that the, the book of Proverbs, um, I'm going to say word of faith content, the stuff that I've encountered has been pretty problematic. So let's assume that you're, these people that you're discussing, um, your in-laws, they're in the camp of the stuff that I try to refute. Okay, well, I, would, I think that what they're teaching is folly. And Proverbs says that you need to be careful when addressing people's folly, right? And it has these two verses next to each other, like don't um, don't re rebuke a fool in his folly or according to his folly. And then the next verse is like rebuke him according to his folly. And the point of the Proverbs there is to show you there's there's danger either way. All I can say is I don't know whether you should or not. But if you do, if you do, here's my counsel. Don't just do it because uh, uh, you have a knee-jerk reaction to something they say. I would say really prayerfully, thoughtfully get into it. Like think about things like, should I write them a note or should I talk to them in person? Would it be better one-on-one -on -one or would it be better as a group? Would it be better to start by asking them questions and listen for a while along certain lines before I say things? Are there things I can say that will build a bridge? Like talking about how much I love them and how much I love the word of God and how much I, I care about the authenticity of the Holy Spirit. Like are there ways I can affirm them that will help me be hearable to them later? Um, what are the things they care about that will help lead them out of these false beliefs? Can I find those things that they care about? And I'm just saying be as clever and thoughtful and careful and wise as you can if you do talk to them about these things. Kumbo Munsaka says, greetings, Mike. Uh, should Christians drink alcohol, wine, uh, oh, alcoholic wine at the commemoration of the Lord's Supper? We must use unleavened bread or must we use unleavened bread? Um, so I think that... Um, it's in my brief opinion, it's fine to have grape juice. That's fine. I, I think that unleavened bread seems like more of a big deal to me than whether the wine has alcohol in it or not, because I don't think that it would have mattered to the people at the time, whether the grape juice was fermented or not. So they did use wine. 
Um, but they would use wine of varying strengths and things like that. So I don't think the strength is, is, is important. I think it's appropriate for churches that want to use alcohol. I think that's totally okay. I wouldn't have a problem, even though I don't drink. I, that would be the one time I would. It'd be like, okay, we're doing communion. That's the one time. I mean, I'm, like, I'm not going to have any kind of effect in my life that way. I think it's appropriate. I, I, I accept that. But I also think that Paul says that in Romans uh, 14, I believe it is, there are, th there are those who don't drink and they don't have to, and that they can observe their conscience. Well, obviously those people are still partaking of communion, so they must be partaking of grape juice. The reason why I like the leaven, the unleavened bread in communion, is because that actually has real symbolic value in the sinlessness of Christ. And so the meal that he's at, the, uh, the, the wine being alcoholic, I think is incidental and can't be required because look at Romans 14 um, and they were still having communion. But the unleavened bread is not incidental. It's symbolic, the unleavened bread, right? The wine's symbolic too, but I mean, it's symbolic because it's grape juice, not because it's alcoholic. That's my point. The alcohol content, not the symbolic part. The unleavened bread, the, the, the lack of leaven is symbolic. And I do think that, that I want to preserve that. I wouldn't condemn somebody who has leavened bread at that meeting. Um, I would think it's a mistake. I wouldn't condemn it. I wouldn't think the Lord rejects it. Or anything like that. Um, Adriano has a question. Last one for today. If I live in habitual sin from addiction and I really want to overcome it, but I keep backsliding, am I still saved? Or am I using it as a license to sin? If I don't stop before I die, what happens? Now, Adriano, here's, here's a question I don't know how to answer. And I, I, I want, okay, pastorally, I want to, I want to comfort you. I want to encourage you. And I want to encourage you about the grace of Christ and about how um, John 2, 1, if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's my advocate. He is my righteousness. I'm not righteous, but he is. And Jesus is still righteous. And even though you're not, he's still righteous. I want to encourage you with that. But I also read in 1 John these, these warnings about habitual sin and about habitual sin in the life of a believer. And I don't know where the line is drawn on that. I just honestly don't know. But one thing I would say don't do, don't sit there and despair. I guess I'm lost. I'll give up. That is absolutely not from the Lord. The I quit mentality is not from God in any way, shape, or form. I mean, that was Judas, right? He, he hung himself. I mean, I think if the guy had just stuck around, he could have, he could have been saved. He could have been used by God. I mean, um, Peter could have gone and hung himself, but instead he hung around. And he waited on and appealed to and trusted in the grace of Christ who restored him. So my concern is this. Stop thinking, if I continue doing these things, will I be saved? And start thinking, what have I not done to stop this sin and do those things? Focus on that. Focus on that. And I'm sorry that I don't know your situation. I know one sentence of your life. And I, I don't know how to counsel you on these things. I, I don't know... When somebody's that genuine believer versus that false believer and sin is giving evidence that they're actually a false believer or if they're a genuine believer who's just dealing with major sin issues. And I don't know how to make that dis 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 distinction. God does and God will make it. I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. But no matter what the answer is, no matter what your situation is, the answer is going to be Jesus Christ. Is going to be uh, appealing to Christ, trusting in the grace of God, coming and trusting in him and believing in, her, in his forgiveness. And then taking steps and measures to avoid the sin and steps that maybe you've never taken before. Steps that are more extreme or more serious than you've taken in the past. Because you, if, you, if you just ask yourself, if I was really serious about quitting the sin, what would I do? What would I do differently? And then get serious about it. Um, you guys, listen, on my second YouTube channel, you, you know this, I started a second YouTube channel and it's all about training and equipping Christians to do uh, evangelical Christians to make YouTube content, like make your own channels. So I'm just going to give you tips and things I've learned. I don't know everything about YouTube, but I've learned a lot over the years. I've spent a l many, many hours studying it. I mean, countless hours studying how this thing works and how to make content I do successful on the platform. And it's not just an accident. Like a lot of it's been st strategy stuff. So I'm going to be sharing a lot of that stuff in that YouTube channel. So if you're interested or if you know a believer who's like starting or already has a YouTube channel and you're like, boy, I want you to do better, subscribe to my channel. It's called YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. You could just Google it. YouTube Tactics with Mike Winger. I'm going to probably go live later today to talk about, um, I think it's value proposition and um, yeah, how to, how to get subscribers, not just views. 
I'm probably going to go live today to talk about that issue. And if that interests you, I encourage you to check it out. Um, I don't care how big that channel gets so much as that we find the right people so I can help them grow and reach more people for the kingdom of God because I like to see 10,000 Christian YouTube channels here. So thank you all so much for joining. I do not have a video on Monday. This Monday, I will be on vacation with my wife. I will may not even have a video next Friday. There may be very little in the next week. Nothing bad has happened to me, I promise. I'm just taking a little vacation, which I'm very happy about. Um, and I'm just going to re refuel my batteries and recharge and spend some time with my bride. So thank you all so much for being here. And I think that's all the announcement stuff I've got. Yeah, um, I think that's it. So God bless you. And we'll see you, I don't know, maybe later today on my other channel. If not, I might not see you for like a week and a half or two weeks. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll just pop on suddenly and surprise my mods. <laughs> All right. Take care.